But now we've gone more to uh, the blends with the prebiotic fibers and the knowledge about soluble fibers and the ratios. We kind of know about that, uh, those things for different life stages and so forth. I mean, not that we don't have a lot to learn. I mean, we do, but uh, we, we're getting there where, where uh, okay, how much fiber does a puppy need, okay, uh, after it's weaned? How much does it need? What's the ratio? And then go to the other end of the life, the aged animal, the geriatric and the 15-year-old dog. How much does it need? Well, it needs different than what that puppy needs, right? And then if you have, uh, if you have uh, dogs with health issues like digestive problems of one type or another or allergy problems or whatnot, uh, you can, the, the carbohydrate composition makes a difference. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where we seek to discuss research from around the world and how we may apply to innovation in the pet food industry. I am your host, Julia Pezzali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. George Fahey and to talk about the past and future potential of fiber in the diet of dogs and cats. Welcome, Dr. Fahey. Thank you, Julia. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm well as well. Uh, before we start talking about fiber and all the amazing things you have, you have done in the past years, would you mind telling us uh, and our audience a little bit of our background and how you end up in the area of companion animal nutrition? Uh, well, I've been at the University of Illinois now for almost 46 years, so a long time. Uh, I uh, finished my uh, education at West Virginia University in 1976. I got my PhD and I was hired in Illinois as a ruminant nutritionist. I had, I had studied comparative nutrition, so, uh, but one of the species was ruminant species. And so uh, I was hired here as a ruminant nutritionist and I studied fiber for all of my uh, research life. And so I continued that here and uh, so I, that was the major focus for probably uh, 15 years or so. And then uh, the, uh, it got very difficult to obtain funding for research in ruminant fiber, uh, in the fiber area with regard to ruminant nutrition. And so I had the chance, uh, we had a, a companion animal program here that uh, really uh, – really involved teaching only one course. One person was teaching one course. So we didn't have much of a program and, and the leadership of the department at the time wanted to get more into research. So they said, well, if, uh, would you consider uh, taking over the leadership of the companion animal program? So I, I had worked with Dr. Corbin before he was the one that started the program and I'd worked with him for quite a few years, but he had retired. And so he encouraged me to do that. And uh, so this was in the, I'd say, mid-80s or so. And uh, so uh, after some thought, uh, I thought, okay, well, that might be a good opportunity. And it turned out to be a very good opportunity. So uh, then I 
switched over completely around 1990, early 90s, to PET uh, and didn't do any more ruminant research after that. No, that's great. I'm, I'm glad yeah. I accepted the transition. <laughs> I retired in 2010, but I was hired back right away to teach. So I really stepped aside uh, probably in 2015 or so. And today I uh, still serve on student committees and whatnot, do a little work at the university, uh, but uh, mostly do consulting in the pet nutrition space. I know that's awesome. That's awesome. And for, I think everyone knows you, but for those who don't, maybe are listening from other countries, Dr. Faye is always very active on the helping students and being conferences and helping everyone. Yeah, so that's awesome. And I saw fiber was the connection between the transition from ruminant to companion animal. So do you mind sharing with us how was the first studies that you've done with fiber in dogs and cats? And what was the first thing you want to look at when we start studying fiber in companion animals? Yeah, well, there was a bit of a mercenary aspect to the change as well, because uh, when the ruminant uh, uh, research uh, funding sort of dried up, uh, we had a student here in uh, at Illinois that had worked with Dr. Baker named Diane Harakawa. And Diane went to become uh, a uh, ended up being director of R&D over at IMES. So IMES had come on, the IMES company had come on really strong and their objective was to make the very best food possible. And Diane, uh, uh, they had a very good product, but she was uh, interested in the fiber aspect of the diet. She uh, had studied the human literature and, and the human nutrition literature showed that fiber was important. And she thought, well, the, may, the same may be true for dogs, so uh, dogs and cats. So uh, she said, I'll, I will give you, uh, if you will uh, study this, I'll give you a fair amount of money to uh, do these studies. So there was this mercenary aspect to it. I thought, okay, well, <laughs> that sounds like we're off to a good start because you can't do anything without money. And so, so what, what they wanted to study, interestingly enough, was beet pulp. Because uh, there was this, there was this kind of uh, a general feeling that bee pulp was good, but people didn't really know why it was good uh, as a fiber source in pet diets. So uh, we proceeded to uh, uh, get into that. And uh, the funny part about it is that you know I had no graduate students at least bit interested in pet nutrition. They'd all been ruminant nutritionists. I was finishing all them up. And they weren't really interested in doing experiments with dogs or cats. <laughs> so I myself and I got a t I had a technician and I hired somebody else. So we actually did the did the research that turned into three manuscripts that are published in Journal of Animal Science. And it's really the only three manuscripts where it says Fahey et al. Because uh, most of the time I always have the graduate students. They're the senior authors because they did the work, right? They should be the senior authors. That's part of it. Uh, but uh, there was nobody to, uh, to write this up except me. So uh, you'll see three, these three beet pulp articles uh, uh, in Journal of Animal Science authored by Fahey et al. because uh, nobody else was, uh, would write it up. So anyhow, that's how we got started. And then after that, uh, we studied many, many different uh, 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 carbohydrates, fibers, etc. But as you know, Julia, uh, the pet nutrition space is occupied by very few people overall. Way many more nutritionists of various species and human nutritionists than there are pet nutritionists. So you can't become, I learned very fast that uh, you better step out of your fiber space because uh, you're asked questions about every other nutrient that animals need. So you have to kind of become one of these uh, uh, jack of all trades and masters of none because uh, you get so many uh, so many questions about just all the nutrients. So so we've studied over the years many you know fats, proteins, minerals, etc. Uh, always most interested in the carbs, but nevertheless uh, uh, you still have to uh, uh, broaden yourself a little bit and and. Uh, uh, study um, others. Yeah, that's great. So I assume fiber and carbohydrates your 
passion? What is your second, you know, nutrient that you like to explore more? Is there oh, any? I don't think there is a second uh, favorite, so to speak. I mean, we, uh, I, uh, one, another person that uh, uh, was my partner in crime when we started was Dr. Neil Merchant. Mm-hmm. And uh, Neil was a ruminant nutritionist as well. And, uh, and uh, we worked together. He actually set up the, uh, the course. The, for, he, he prepared the first companion animal nutrition course, really an excellent course. And uh, he was a protein person. Uh, he had studied uh, protein nutrition at University of Wisconsin in, in dairy cattle. And so he was obviously interested in that. So we began work with protein as well. We worked together in that. So, but uh, to say you have a favorite, even even to have a favorite is probably not not the best thing because you just don't know what you're what you're going to get into. You just have to kind of be a lifelong learner here and and keep keep your mind open about. Today, of course, you know, it's a lot about supplements and nutraceuticals and functional foods and all these types of things. And, uh, you know, you have to keep yourself educated in those to, to make a contribution, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the most important learning in grad school on your master or PhD is not even the subject, is how to learn to be a scientist, the techniques you learn, the people you connect and having that truly mindset. So yeah, some people that's right. get attached, I want to work with this. No, you're, yeah. you're learning how to be a scientist and that's the yeah. most important yeah. part. I think, yeah, of that's right. School. Yeah, correct. So you talk a little bit about amino acids. Do you mind sharing with us how uh, we start doing the work with ileocannulated uh, ileo cannulated dogs and how that really helped us to kind of understand a little bit more about amino acid bioavailability and protein and why we had to kind of step away over the years from that technique and what other models have you also used and developed to um, get a great insight on protein quality, amino acid adjustability, but also be less invasive on the companion animal area? Well, when we were in, uh, when Neil and I were in uh, studying ruminant nutrition, we always had uh, cannulated animals and uh, rumen cannula, rumen duodenal, ileal cannulated animals oftentimes. And Neil himself was a, excellent surgeon he really was he was fantastic because uh those kind of uh, surgeries you have to do them right if uh you don't uh, the animal there'll be leakage and there'll be problems but he was uh, uh really good in that and uh, so we thought about you know we'd like to get estimates just like uh swine people true digestibility or standardized digestibility of amino acids and so he said, well, and others had done this. Others had uh, done iliocannulations on dogs. And so we did that and it worked out great. I mean, he was, the, the cannulations that he did were perfect. The dogs recovered very fast. Uh, they were very well taken care of. And so for uh, quite a number of years, uh, I'm not, not sure, maybe 15 years, we had a colony anywhere from uh, six to 12 uh, iliocannulated dogs to work with. Uh, and so we ran a lot of ingredients through those because uh, it was a unique opportunity to get this information. Not very many people, not very many others uh, around the country were doing that. The Kentucky, Dave Harmon was doing that uh, at the time. And there was a person or two in Europe, but uh, there weren't too many. And so we did a lot of experiments with uh, ileal cannulated dogs and then uh, um, uh, got a lot of good data, had a lot of publications on that. Uh, so we had those until I retired. But at the, as, as time went on, uh, they, uh, there was uh, people looked askance at that. They didn't like the thought of uh, surgically modifying dogs. And even though the dogs were in wonderful shape and very well treated and, and lived long lives, uh, there was just this uh, perception by the public that it wasn't a good thing to do. So uh, people that followed me were not interested in, in continuing that. It was kind of a continual battle to try to justify these things, even though it was totally allowed uh, from, from an IACUC standpoint and from a uh, from any regulatory body standpoint, it was allowed, but it just didn't have that perception of being something that we should be doing. And so 
Uh, we don't see that done very much anymore, if at all. I don't know of anybody that's doing that kind of work. It's kind of a shame because it's a, it's a, a very good model. It provided the animals well taken care of and provided the surgery is, is done correctly. Uh, it can, it's very useful. But uh, anyhow, it's, it's just not on the table anymore. So we had a person in the apartment named uh, Dr. Carl Parsons who uh, did, uh, had been doing uh, what they call cecectomized rooster assays. And it, this is an assay where they take the cica, the paired cica in the rooster out, and that's the site of almost all the microbial activity in the gut of the rooster. And uh, so you can get the same kind of value and get quote unquote true digestibility or standardized, whatever you want to call it, uh, because there's no microbial contribution to digestion. And so, and that is a very popular model. It's gotten way more popular uh, as time has gone on because uh, you don't have the public perception of that being a problem. And uh, you can get uh, 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 true metabolizable energy, TMEs, and you can get uh, a true or standardized amino acid digestibility values. And so, and then you also can use the ingredient by itself. Instead of the dogs, you could not, you had to have a complete and balanced diet to be able to, to do the work. But with the, uh, with the uh, uh, rooster, you did not. We also paired up with Dr. Stein and uh, others in the swine area at Illinois who have iliocannulated uh, uh, pigs. And so that's another great model. Now, of course, the, the pig is, uh, uh, has a big cecum. And so the data, uh, the digestive physiology there is a little different than, in, than the dog. And so in some sense, the, the uh, rooster is a better model, the cecectomized rooster. Uh, is the model. So that's how we uh, kind of evolved into from away from the iliocannulated dog to the uh, to the cecectomized rooster or the ileal or duodenally cannulated uh, pig. Yeah, no, that's great. And there's a lot of uh, the papers now that with the cecectomized rooster over the years and is yeah, great data to the industry. Um, do you mind explaining for those who are not familiar if they do? Um, a trial and get some digestibility data out of the cecectomized rooster compared to the total tract, the parent total tract using dogs. What the industry are gonna, what differences are they gonna see between those numbers and the importance of probably doing both, so we can get the kind of ideal data on digestibility, but also in the animal are gonna really see the effect on the dog or the cat, right? Yeah, well, uh, apparent digestibility is just simply food intake minus. Uh, feces excreted divided by food intake. So uh, the big thing there is that you have the large bowel that has the microbiota that takes care of, uh, that ferments a lot of the uh, material that is coming out of the ileum. So the parent digestibility values are very valuable uh, because that's really what happens in the, in the animal. Uh, but at the same time, it's always good to know what the true digestibility is because uh, uh, that gives you a sense of, of uh, that allows you to compare what's going on in the large bowel versus the rest of the digestive tract. And so, uh, the, like you say, the comparison is good. It's good to have, it's always good to have parent digestibility studies. Uh, that's always quite useful. But then to have something like a true digestibility of an ingredient that is in the diet that's fed to the animal on the digestion test, that's really valuable. So it's, a, it's, it's helpful to know how to formulate and, and uh, 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 that type of thing. I mean, uh, you, you can determine like what the contribution of the microbial protein is uh, or the what, what are the microorganisms doing to the, to the effluent that reaches them and that type of thing? So it's, uh, both are quite important. Yeah, and I think data only complement each other. So different techniques help us to understand the whole picture and take best decisions for sure. And you mentioned microbiome and microbiota. So how do you, how was the start of doing omics research and 
microbiome uh, data out of not only the short-chain fatty acids in feces. So how was the start of that in your program and how did you see this transition and how it's been evolving over the years? Well, uh, back when, when I, and I'm not, not sure what the year was, but uh, it became quite, quite uh, apparent that the microbiome was important, that the microbiota in the large bowel were important. And, you know, that had been overlooked for so many years in non-ruminant. In ruminant nutrition, that was, a, uh, you, if you talked about anything, you always talked about the bacteria in the rumen, right? I mean, because that's the first, when the food drops into the reticulorumen, and so it's fermented first and foremost. Uh, so as a ruminant person, uh, the microbiota had, had always been important. Um, but not so much in other species. Uh, matter of fact, I remember a seminar one time early on in my career when uh, we were together, a big group were together, and somebody mentioned something that might be going on in the human large bowel, and several professors scoffed at it, you know, like, oh, that doesn't make any difference. <laughs> that, you know, what, what possible role could those things have? Uh, because they had no idea what was going on. But um, so uh, we uh, started doing some of this work back when, in the very early days when the technology was nowhere near what it is today. And uh, uh, I had a couple students back there, back then, PhD students who were interested in studying that. And so I told them, I said, you know, this is well beyond my uh, uh, area of expertise. So I sent them down to uh, uh, take a course in, in the microbiology department by a person that really had a great knowledge of this. And, uh, and I said, you're the one that has to defend this. That, uh, <laughs> when your defense comes up and you don't know the answer to a question, don't look over at me because I won't know. I can tell you that right now. So they took a course or two. And uh, so we started looking at this uh, using that that early technology when it was very expensive. I mean, you know, you could get rid of fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 with one plate or two, you know, one and a half plate. It was ridiculous. So uh, a couple of students started out and then, um, uh, and they, uh, some of their, uh, some of the research that they generated uh, was very interesting. Uh, plus, uh, we had then in the about 1995, the, the whole area of prebiotics became important. And then, uh, of course, probiotics had already had always been kind of important, although, uh, again, uh, that was an area that uh, animal nutritionists always were kind of uh, uh, nebulous. They, we, we didn't know exactly what they did. Was it important to feed a probiotic? Those types of questions. Then this prebiotic concept came out, and that, of course, directly impacted the microbiome. And so these students started that. But now then the technology got so much better, and people like the group here at Illinois, Kelly Swanson, Maria Digadoy, they're taking this, they're studying this all the time now using the latest technology. But uh, when I got, when my students started in it, uh, it was it was really kind of at the, at the front end, technology was uh, limited. It was very expensive, but uh, we got kind of got the thing started. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, it's gone, gone on from there, so, which I'm happy to see because it's really important to, to know these things. Yeah, I know it's important to understand and to get this additional data as well, not only the products of fermentation, seeing this, again, the whole picture of, things help us to tell a better story and when you're comparing ingredients or diets and um, how they play a role on, on good health. Yeah. And the other, the other thing, you know, that's come on now is this postbiotics. Uh, mm -hmm. That's another term now. And uh, that or the organization that really has helped us in this area is ISAP, the International Scientific Association for Pre and Probiotics. Uh, that, that uh, the people in that are just top notch and they're generating what I consider to be the very best data in this area. And uh, 
They're providing the definitions. They're providing the strengths and weaknesses of technologies and all these types of things and interpretations. And they're very balanced. They're not like probiotic, you know, they're not really getting behind, oh, yeah, you have to have a probiotic. No, they, 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 uh, they're very balanced in how they view these things. And uh, I think that that's really advanced the field. Yeah, are they more focused on the human side or is that? Yeah, they are. They are, but uh, I was on the board of directors for a while, and my job was to kind of be the animal, quote unquote, animal person. And uh, uh, there was some interest at the time, but actually, as time has gone on, there's been a little more interest. We just had a meeting in Denver last uh, last month that uh, we had a whole animal section uh, on uh, on. Uh, uh, postbiotic, prebiotics, postbiotics, and, uh, and uh, probiotics. And uh, so I'm hopeful they'll, they'll kind of embellish on the animal work and, and, and uh, promote that more. Yeah. Uh, so for humans, there is uh, some entities, organizations that they recommend, uh, even though dietary fiber is not an essential or indispensable nutrient, there is for humans a uh, recommended uh, dietary fiber intake per day, depending on the on um, uh, depending on the age. Do you think there is maybe some benefit benefits of doing the same for our companion animals? And do you think we maybe over the years are going to move towards more a recommended intake of fiber depending on the age or life stage? And talking about healthy animals, I think we uh, uh, are kind of doing that now, maybe more informally than formally. Um, because uh, we do know a lot more about uh, how fiber impacts the, the uh, uh, digestive physiology and the overall health and well-being of the animal. And so um, I don't know if we'll ever get to the stage where there'll be uh, the requirement like or the, the suggested values that we have for humans, but... Uh, but those of us in the field kind of know what the what the appropriate amount is and 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 the idiosyncrasies for example you have to like with soluble fiber you have to be very careful with cats cats don't uh, react well to a lot of soluble fiber where, where a dog would have no problem so those kind of things and it's gone way past the beet pulp uh, thing beet pulp is still uh, really uh, excellent and the reason it is is because uh, regardless of how it's been handled, whether it was harvested at the time the beet was harvested and protected from the weather, or whether it set out in the North Dakota winter, you know, for months, uh, it still has this unique ratio of soluble to insoluble fiber. Okay, uh, if if a beet pulp has been uh, protected, it can have a ratio of fifty fifty. It can have half of its fiber can be can be uh, soluble. Now, most of it are not protected. And so you'll find that the ratio is 70-30 or 80-20, something like that. But it always has a, a fair amount of soluble fiber. And, uh, and uh, this is the, this is the uh, uh, kind of the key to the success of beet pulp. And, you know, we can go back to, uh, uh, to even ruminant uh, work and uh, if you show dairy cattle, for example, and you don't want them uh, defecating, you're in the show ring and you want them nice and clean, a lot of times the farmer will feed beet pulp because it firms up the feces. And so uh, they, they, there's this little, these little tricks from ages ago that have been used. And come to find out, uh, it's, it's because of its unique fiber property. And so... Um, uh, but now we've gone more to uh, the blends with the prebiotic fibers and the knowledge about soluble fibers and the ratios. We kind of know about that, uh, those things for different life stages and so forth. I mean, not that we don't have a lot to learn. I mean, we do. But uh, we, we're getting there where, where uh, okay, how much fiber does a puppy need, okay, uh, after it's weaned? How much does it need? What's the ratio? And then go to the other end of the life, the aged animal, the geriatric and the 15-year-old dog. 
how much does it need? Well, it needs different than what that puppy needs, right? And then if you have uh, if you have uh, dogs with health issues like digestive problems of one type or another, or allergy problems or whatnot, uh, you can the the carbohydrate composition makes a difference, and so uh, we can strategically work to try to make a better diet by knowing some of these things. Yeah. And I think moving from the fruit fiber to total dietary fiber in the label will oh, yeah. be a game changing. The fact that we stayed with crude for so long is just, uh, it's unconscionable really. I mean, it was, there's a paper, you know, that paper was published in like the 1860s and about two years after that paper was published, there was a paper about how bad the assay was. <laughs> <laughs> so we've known that for so long yet uh, in animal nutrition and human nutrition, they moved away from that long, long ago. Back when, you know, fiber became important in human nutrition in the 70s. And it was recognized quite soon after that, that that crude fiber was not the way to go. And then we, we did have the detergent fiber system back in there. Uh, and it was wonderful at measuring insoluble, but not soluble. So thus the, all these total dietary fiber procedures came on board beginning in the eighties because uh, human foods had so much of soluble fiber in them. And it was the soluble fiber that had a lot of the metabolic effects. Uh, the insoluble is basically for laxation, okay? But the soluble fiber is the one that helps reduce blood cholesterol. It helps glycemic control. It helps immune function, that type of thing. And so we've taken a lot. Of, the human is a wonderful model for dogs because uh, the digestive tract is just exactly the same. There's no mm -hmm. cecum. Uh, the relative proportion and length, the, the, the dog's a little smaller, uh, in large bowel than a human in terms of capacity uh, relative to body weight. Uh, but uh, human is a wonderful model for, uh, for the dog. Yeah, I know that's great. And I, if you don't have iliocannulated uh, pigs, I think humans are for sure the best model because of the big cecum of the swine and different yeah. feeding, feeding right, tapes exactly. as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can maybe get some funding from those government agencies using dog as a model for humans. <laughs> That's <laughs> not easy. There. <laughs> they haven't been very supportive. The government hasn't. With yeah, it's always been a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we talk about a little bit about digestibility and uh, using some other uh, models for dogs and a little bit of cats, but how about the in vitro techniques? Uh, do you think there is value in screening maybe novel fiber sources or carbohydrate sources for their fermentability using in vitro, or should we just go to a dog or catch wild first? What is the advantage of those in vitro techniques? Well, the advantage of the in vitro, obviously, is that you can test a lot of things on the lab bench, uh, and uh, you don't have to, all you need is uh, uh, fecal samples to generate the inoculum uh, necessary. I always say that uh, that in vitro is great for screening, uh, and it's great for ranking, but it always gives better results than you're going to get in vivo. So if you test a prebiotic, let's say a potential candidate, a potential prebiotic candidate, uh, and you look at the microbiota afterwards, and you do all that type of work, It'll often show you, oh, there's these wonderful changes and, and everything really looks good. Then you go to the animal, uh, not so much, not, not quite as much. And so uh, you have to be careful. You don't want to draw a, a, a direct inference from the in vitro. But, but if you're testing, let's say, any number of ingredients or any number of, of compounds that you're interested in putting in a, a, in a pet diet. I think it's very effective in, in ranking those and in giving you an idea whether there's any reason to move forward. Uh, it can, it can uh, if you have bad in vitro or if you have, let's say, very negative in vitro results after you've provided the in vitro setup is good and everything then there's not much reason to move on. But uh, 
if you get some decent results, uh, uh, then in turn, it, it helps with the ranking and it'll help you decide, okay, you have 10 substrates. Well, I can't t- test 10 substrates in vivo. So I can test three. Uh, it might be useful to, to decide on what those three are going to be. So I, I like in vitro. Uh, of course, there's, as you know, well know, there's so many in vitro. There's no standardization. Yeah, and that's no problem. You go, uh, you go from the, the 50 mil uh, centrifuge tube, right, uh, which gives you about as good a results as anything, to all the way to this TNO uh, system that they have in the Netherlands, which is a computer uh, computer uh, run system that takes into account what goes in through the stomach and is simulated small intestine and and they've been working on the large bowel. I think they've got some kind of a system now, but it's very expensive, uh, whatnot. But you know, there are many, many in vitro systems. Yeah, standardization is also a challenge across our discipline and many others as well. And so, since you have seen a lot of those techniques transition and changing over the years, uh, do you have an idea about? What do you think is next for fiber or what is kind of the future of fiber in the next couple of years? And it's a very broad question and probably nobody wants to <laughs> answer these kind of questions. And I'm sorry for asking, but I was interested in hearing your thoughts on this. Well, one of the things that we have to recognize is that, uh, that a lot of people forget about is that we already in the commercial pet food, we already have fiber, right? Uh, have corn in the diet. Corn has about 10% TDF. Some of our pet diets have a soybean meal. Soybean meal has 18% TDF. It has 5% galacto-oligosaccharides. So some of our, what we might call economic diets, already have a ton of fiber just from the natural ingredients that are there. So why would they need to be supplemented? Well, again, as you know, the industry, though, is moving toward what the marketers call premium and super premium. So uh, a lot of times we won't find... uh, uh, soybean meal in the diet, we might not find corn in the diet. They might use rice or they might use uh, uh, some kind of animal protein at, in high amounts, that type of thing. So when you get to those kind of diets, then that's when the uh, fiber profile uh, needs to be evaluated very carefully. And so, uh, and it's not today, it's not about one fiber. It's about what I think of as fiber blends. So you can put together different fiber blends to address specific health issues for animals or specific life stages for animals. Uh, and that's, I think, where the future comes in. The other exciting part is the, uh, the prebiotic fibers, where you can use very low concentrations in the diet that have maximal impact, okay? Because they're very fermentable. They allow... Uh, the good bugs in the in the large bowel to grow, and they make their own uh, postbiotic in, uh, postbiotic compounds, that type of thing. So uh, it's a matter now of understanding that. Then the probiotic area, the probiotics are so much better than they used to be. Uh, years ago, uh, you, probiotics were considered in animal nutrition. We call them AFCO calls them direct fed microbials. Uh, they were kind of foo-foo dust, you know. I mean, they'd be put in and did they have a role? Who knew? Well, today, uh, there's good evidence that there's some very, very good uh, probiotic organisms and combinations of organisms. And I think the, the coolest thing that could happen would be for um, a true symbiotic to be produced that would be specific to the dog and specific to the cat. Okay, so for again, if the if the listeners don't know, a symbiotic is a combination of the probiotic and the prebiotic, and we're not there yet by any means. We don't know exactly what probiotic organisms harmonize with prebiotic carbohydrates to produce a good effect in the animal, and I think that would be fantastic. I think that would allow a lot of good postbiotic compounds to be formed. And I think the animal would benefit greatly from that. So I think that's one of the 
real challenges and one of the real exciting opportunities uh, down the road. Uh, and I think we can do that. We just don't need you, you, we don't need just FOS as a prebiotic. There are uh, a lot of prebiotic candidates, we call them. You know, they're, they, have, they have activity on the microbiota, and uh, they affect the microbiota. And uh, we, we need to expand that list. Uh, ISAP officially, just, there's just three. There's uh, fructooligosaccharides, galactooligosaccharides, and lactulose. And that list hasn't expanded. Now, there's many other compounds that have uh, prebiotic activity, okay? And uh, we need to expand that list, and then we need to try to synergize the probiotic with the prebiotic. And uh, I, I really do believe that uh, that that could lead to some really good uh, uh, effects for the animal. Yeah, that sounds very challenging, but also very exciting. So I hope. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's possible now, I think, with the technology. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah Willinoid does an amazing job with all the studies and investigations. So I'm sure there are going to be amazing things coming from there over the years. And I'm excited yeah, well, to, to I learn more. As well. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for our famous three. Well, thank you, Dr. Fahey, for your uh, talking about fiber and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, I'm going to ask you some three last questions, if you don't mind. One, I, I gave some spoilers to you, so you had uh, some time to think. But if you were not, um, you know, research scientist on the animal science or nutrition in area or side, what do you think would be, you know, have you ever thought about when you're a kid? I don't know if you had other dreams or hopes or what do you think would be? When I was a kid, I, uh, I, I come from West Virginia where the gas and oil industry are uh, very uh, prominent. And uh, I, if I, I thought about being an engineer, um, because I really liked, I really liked the, uh, I was around those operations and I thought it was the coolest thing. But uh, my, unfortunately, my math skills did not match my, uh, <laughs> my desire. <laughs> I think I would have probably flunked out of college the first year if I had to take uh, engineering. So I, I figured that out even in high school that, ah, I don't think that this is going to work for me. <laughs> so actually, I, I started college with the idea of being a high school biology teacher because oh, okay. I liked, yeah. And, uh, and then I figured out, oh, wow, I, could, I might be able to teach in college. What does that take? So, so anyhow, the engineer was the, was the other uh, uh, career path, but uh, that didn't uh, uh, work. With all the softwares that we have today, I think we will we'll not need to do a lot of, you know, yeah. handing or... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be, well, you still need you still need to pass differential equations and calculus 10 and all that. So I, I don't think I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> the last two, since you have seen many grad students and people over the years, and most of them, I assume they succeed, but also there is always some people that don't find themselves in grad school. What do you think is something some students that may get caught up during grad school that may set them for failure or you know, not let them succeed as much as they could? Well, I think, uh, I think uh, the uh, most graduate students that we've had over the years, and we've had a lot, have been uh, highly motivated. I think, uh, I think if the one thing that some people uh, attend graduate school because they want to be a veterinarian and they didn't get in. You know, that in our business, that that was the thing. So they're kind of waiting it out. And uh, that's OK. I mean, uh, sometimes it takes a year or two to get in. And and I had uh, several master's students that uh, went on to uh, become a veterinarian. And I would tell them that, and they made no they were all very honest about it. And I said, OK, we can give you some research experience. But a master's degree is two years. And I expect you to stay for two years. And I expect you to write a master's thesis. And then uh, I think you'll be in a good place to apply again because you will take some more courses. You'll probably do good in those courses. And uh, so that's worked out really well. Uh, 
I think anybody that's not honest about that, that they just join graduate school because, and then they take, they jump off as soon as they get in vet school. That's not very, uh, uh, that's, that's not a good thing for them or the, or the professor, because uh, there's a dishonesty there that they they don't say, well, I'm going to jump out as soon as I get something else. But you kind of learn how to, over the years, you learn how to figure out uh, people's story and see if they're kind of being straight with you. I think one of the things, Julia, that uh, uh, as far as the mistake uh, that some graduate students make is that there's some that stop at the masters and they are so talented and they could easily go on for a PhD. They don't do it. And they're going to hit the glass ceiling. One of these days they're going to hit the glass ceiling, maybe in 10 years, then it's too late because they're used to, they may have be married. They may have a family. They're making a decent salary, but yet they've hit the glass ceiling. They can't go up any further. And they're kicking themselves because they didn't go on. They didn't take the extra three years, which seems like a long time when you're young. But looking back, it's like a it goes so fast. Uh, and they didn't get the doctorate, which where there's no glass ceiling for you. You can do whatever you want, and you can you can excel and uh, or not. But you know, it's up to you. And so uh, that's what I see. I see a lot of kids that uh, that did not go on that. Uh, I think later on they wish they had, uh, and I'm not a lot of those people. Some are quite satisfied with what they have, but uh, that, that's the only real uh, issue that I would see. Uh, most of them are very hard workers. Uh, they're very into their area. Uh, they do very well. So I don't have a. I didn't have a lot of problem with that at all. No, that's great, and. I think sometimes you have to make some compromises in the short run to get, you know, the long, see the long run results of it. Yeah, that's right. You have to have the long view of the thing. And, yeah. And, uh, and it's hard sometimes even, I think now it's even harder because you have so much distractions and opportunities that some people may got caught up on that. And, right. But, right. Right. And how about any, do you have for a lot of successful people that you, that you met over the years, there any specific traits that all of them they share or, um, you know, those people that, you know, those are highly successful people, they have this trait specific that you think is common to them? And well, I think the, I think the main trait is perseverance. I think you have to be persevering through, uh, through the, through life and the challenges that life brings that if you, you, uh, it's, so that we all run into issues that uh, uh, that have a that are difficult, but uh, if you can persevere through those, I I think that's the that, that's one thing I see in in students today that a lot of them uh, used to be many more of them were interested in academia, and uh, today it seems to me this is just my observation it may or may not be true, but so many more are interested in industry. And uh, industry has a lot of good jobs. Uh, there's a lot of good opportunities in industry, and it's easy to understand why they would want to go into industry. Uh, in academia, uh, as you probably already know from being there in Iowa State for a short while, there, like you say, there's so many distra- so many things pulling you in so many different ways. Uh, you have to teach. You have to do some service. You have to do research, and and all. And there's all kinds of stuff that goes along with each of those uh, responsibilities. And so in academia, you have to love what you do. I mean, you have to, uh, you cannot be an eight to five person at all. Uh, you have to really be into the area and not mind sitting down Saturday and working all day Saturday. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just, uh, they're just, it just is not a 40 hour a week job. And, uh, and so if you like what you do, uh, it's not work, but it, if you, if you are worried about the time and all that, then probably that's, it, it's not for you. And so with industry, they have more, uh, more, I think more freedom. They're more, it's more, uh, uh, 
I mean, you have to work hard, certainly, but uh, I think it's uh, there's more time that you have of your own, that type of thing. You're not encouraged to work on the weekend. Matter of fact, they shut some of the places down that you're not even allowed in back in your in your office during that time. And so, uh, uh, but both are, it, it depends on, on you. It depends on the individual as to what they want to do. And, and uh, again, we're fortunate in nutrition to have so many opportunities. I mean, we have industry, we have academe, we have government, we have consulting, and there's jobs in all of this. Okay. There's jobs in all of these things. And, uh, some of our brethren aren't so fortunate to have so many opportunities within their field. And uh, we remain uh, blessed to have all those opportunities. Yeah, and I think uh, we, can, we are seeing more now. We probably have seen as well there is more universities paying more attention to companion animals. So there are going to be probably more positions opening up over the years. And I hope people are passionate about academia and training you the next generation so because you're going to need those people as well so i hope people have those goals in life as well and universities today provide so much more uh help to the to the younger person i mean yes when yes. i started i was thrown into the classroom within three months and i had given a few lectures and seminars and that was the extent of my teach teaching uh experience well, now you have workshops, and they have all kinds of uh, uh, all kinds of help that they provide, and that's great. So uh, you're not without uh, you're not thrown to the wolves anymore. Uh, you uh, they, they give you the tools that are necessary to be successful. Yeah, and it's both ways. University wants you to be successful because they're investing in you. So yeah, right, sure. And there's a lot of mentorship and support. So yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Faye, for accepting, talking with me, and sharing with our audience your knowledge. And it's an honor to be able to talk with you a little bit more for your expertise and be able to be here with us today. Thank so you. thank you very much. All right. Take care.